from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. We did not take action to start a war. During a week of high drama between the U.S. and Iran, a top Iranian general was assassinated by the U.S. Americans on military bases in Iraq had to run for cover from Iranian-launched ballistic missiles, and the leaders of both nations warned more attacks could be coming. But what kind of attacks could Iran be planning? The uh, most likely targets that they would go after are going to be financial defense. Oil and gas is one that they are very active in. Uh, And then the other one is in technology and uh, information services. But what is Iran capable of? And, uh, you know, the regime had to bring people, snipers, in the street and shooting at the people. Now, U.S. authorities are warning about Iran's possible attacks here in the homeland. Details on that and more coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. This is how Wednesday, January 8th, 2020, started in Washington. As long as I'm president of the United States, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. Good morning. I'm pleased to inform you The American people should be extremely grateful and happy. No Americans were harmed in last night's attack by the Iranian regime. We suffered no casualties. All of our soldiers are safe, and only minimal damage was sustained at our military bases. Our great American forces are prepared for anything. Iran appears to be standing down, which is a good thing for all parties concerned and a very good thing for the world. No American or Iraqi lives were lost because of the precautions taken, the dispersal of forces, and an early warning system that worked very well. I salute the incredible skill and courage of America's men and women in uniform for far too long, all the way back to 1979, to be exact. Nations have tolerated Iran's destructive and destabilizing behavior in the Middle East and beyond. Those days are over. Iran has been the leading sponsor of terrorism and their pursuit of nuclear weapons threatens the civilized world. We will never let that happen. Last week, we took decisive action to stop a ruthless terrorist from threatening American lives. At my direction, the United States military eliminated the world's top terrorist 
Qasem Soleimani. As the head of the Quds Force, Soleimani was personally responsible for some of the absolutely worst atrocities. He trained terrorist armies, including Hezbollah, launching terrorist strikes against civilian targets. He fueled bloody civil wars all across the region. He viciously wounded and murdered thousands of U.S. troops, including the planting of roadside bombs that maim and dismember their victims. Soleimani directed the recent attacks on U.S. personnel in Iraq that badly wounded four service members and killed one American, and he orchestrated the violent assault on the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. In recent days, he was planning new attacks on American targets, but we stopped him. Soleimani's hands were drenched in both American and Iranian blood. He should have been terminated long ago. By removing Soleimani, we have sent a powerful message to terrorists. If you value your own life, you will not threaten the lives of our people. As we continue to evaluate options in response to Iranian aggression, the United States will immediately impose additional punishing economic sanctions on the Iranian regime. These powerful sanctions will remain until Iran changes its behavior. In recent months alone, Iran has seized ships in international waters, fired an unprovoked strike on Saudi Arabia, and shot down two U.S. drones. Iran's hostilities substantially increased after the foolish Iran nuclear deal was signed in 2013. And they were given $150 billion, not to mention $1.8 billion in cash. Instead of saying thank you to the United States, they chanted death to America. In fact, they chanted death to America the day the agreement was signed. Then Iran went on a terrorist spree, funded by the money from the deal, and created hell in Yemen, Syria, Lebanon, Afghanistan, and Iraq. The missiles fired last night at us and our allies were paid for with the funds made available by the last administration. The regime also greatly tightened the reins on their own country, even recently killing 1,500 people at the many protests that are taking place all throughout Iran. Iran promised revenge, and as you heard the president say, it happened on Tuesday night, January 7th. And interestingly enough, it took place at the very same hour, one week later, that General Qasim Soleimani was killed in a U.S. missile strike. One very important point to note, Iran said that anything they did would be direct and would be proportionate. Direct meaning conducted by Iranian forces. But proportionate also means since Qasem Soleimani was by some accounts the number two official in Iran and Iran's top general, wouldn't that mean they would go after the top general in the U.S. or the second most powerful person in the U.S. political system? That wasn't the case on Tuesday night, January 7th. So would they be still looking to do something like that now? 
The prevailing wisdom that we've gathered today seems to suggest that no, they're done with this. But one thing we've learned over the years about Iran is that you can never say never. One of the people who knows that all too well is Ali Reza, Jeff Herzadi. He's the deputy director of the Washington office of the National Council of the Resistance of Iran. And he's been a direct target of some of Iran's aggression. You said a minute ago that these are the days you live for. What did you mean? Well, these are the days that the regime um, is receiving the very extensive blows that they deserve. Um, think about it. 40 years of repression at home and 40 years of terrorism abroad by the Iranian regime. And uh, I have a feeling that those days are coming to an end, um, both inside Iran, but also abroad. Uh, we've seen uh, protests in Iran nationwide. Just past November, 191 cities were engulfed in the, in the anti-regime um, uh, demonstrations that people were calling for regime change. They were confronting the Revolutionary Guards. They were empty-handed, but they were not afraid of the Revolutionary Guards who were opening fire on them. The regime had to kill 1,500 people, arresting 12,000 people, yet the revolt has continued. And that's why I feel that the momentum is on the side of the people of Iran. And people felt during the November uprising that this regime can be brought down, that they are capable of bringing it down. They're not afraid of the regime anymore. They're willing uh, to pay the price, you know, to sacrifice their lives to liberate Iran. And also, I think the international community are, is beginning to understand what this regime is all about. Mm. Um, in terms of terrorism of the Iran regime, the, the world had really accepted um, what the regime was trying to dictate to them. The regime's strategy was, you know, we're the bully in the region. Uh, you either deal with us and, and follow our directions or else we're going to hit you. Okay. Uh, let me let me let me move on to today's questions. Um, I, I will get back to that shortly, but um, I want your opinion on this uh, strike that killed uh, Qasem uh, Soleimani, General Soleimani. What are your thoughts about that? I think the uh, killing of Qasem Soleimani um, is a major, major blow to the Iranian regime from which it will never recover, period. Um, uh, you know, of course, they introduced uh, a successor to Soleimani, but Soleimani has no successors. You know, practically speaking, he was the number two person in the Iranian regime after Khamenei. I'm not talking about official rankings because, you know, the commander of the Revolutionary Guards has a higher ranking than Qasem Soleimani. But, but you know, he, Soleimani was, was bigger for the regime than the commander of Revolutionary Guards, than the head of the judiciary, than the president of the regime, Hassan Rouhani, uh, than the head of the, uh, you know, the speaker of the parliament, than anybody else, uh, because he was someone that was um, uh, created by Khomeini first and then Khamenei over the years. And um, he was the protector of the system. He was the biggest ally that Khamenei had uh, in the entire uh, political system of the Iranian regime. 
he had created a network outside of Iran to what they call give them strategic depth, meaning terrorism outside of Iran to uh, keep the Revolutionary Guards momentum going. And when it came to the domestic repression, again, Qasem Soleimani was right there uh, giving them direction, advice, or even sometimes bringing its own um, Shia militia proxies from outside of Iran to help the suppression of the protests inside the country. So in one word, the impact is huge. And, and wait until the, you know, the three days of the uh, uh, funeral ceremony and all of those uh, ends, and you will see the depth of the impact it, it has had on the regime. So the U.S.'s decision to do this, um, the fallout from it, uh, what kind of capabilities does Iran have that it can use to follow through on what it says is a promise and that it's going to respond directly and proportionately? Well, you know, of course, the Iran regime, uh, historically, the past 30, 40 years have re has relied on uh, its terrorism as the main tool in their hand. That's what they did in, in Lebanon, in Iraq, in other places, uh, targeting Americans, targeting others. Uh, they also have the, um, uh, their missile program, um, which at the end of the day, all of those capabilities um, are really limited. Um, the regime's reliance on the proxy war and the proxy forces to attack uh, Western interests is, is much, much less now than it was even a year or two years ago. Uh, look at the situation in Iraq. That's where the Shia militias were basically dominating the whole country uh, because particularly relying on the Shia majority population in Iraq. That situation has significantly changed. Uh, it's the Shia population in Iraq that is revolting against the Iranian regime. You saw in Najaf and Karbala, the two holiest uh, Shia sites in the world um, that was revolting against the Iran regime's presence and involvement in Iraq. Basra, the second most populated city in Iraq, again, Shia majority, major, major revolt there against the regime. So, uh, you know, the, the regime has lost the ground that it had built uh, through years of, uh, you know, repression and, and uh, funding all of these groups and training them. The whole thing has crumbled in big time. So, I wouldn't count as much on the uh, capabilities of the Iran regime. Of course, the regime does a lot of uh, rhetoric, you know, a lot of hot air. Um, but um, I, I, I don't think the regime is, is capable of delivering its own promises. Um, and, you know, those days are, are over. Now, that doesn't now, mean that the regime now, wouldn't do anything. Let me, let me just jump in here. Ali Reza, you are a really intelligent guy. You're one of the smartest people that I know when it comes to Iran and many other international affairs situations. And I know that you don't like the regime at all, and, and with good reason. And, you know, that's, that's, that's not to be contested at all. But talking to intelligence agencies like the Defense Intelligence Agency and talking to cyber experts and talking to the Central Intelligence Agency and other people, and other organizations, they say Iran is one of the foremost threats to the U.S. and the world. So it seems as though you're saying that's really not true. Is that is that is that what you're saying? 
No, I'm not saying that the Iran regime isn't a threat. Uh, certainly, the, the biggest threat still remains the Iranian regime. What I'm talking about is their capabilities that has significantly been diminished, uh, both outside of Iran, because they've relied on the proxy forces and the environment they created for these proxies to operate in. Like, you know, the Hashto Shabi. When you have the Hashto Shabi in Iraq uh, under the attack by the Iraqi people, that limits the, uh, the capabilities of that group. It puts them on a defensive position, as opposed to the time that they were benefiting the support um, and the environment favorable to them uh, in Iraq. Look at the situation in Lebanon. Uh, Hezbollah, who was dominating that country for three, four decades, um, is in a, in a defensive position. The people are revolting against Hezbollah. And uh, inside Iran is probably the most important element that this regime is so preoccupied uh, within its own borders. Um, you, you know, think about 191 cities being involved in demonstrations against the regime. People were, were attacking the headquarters of Revolutionary Guards, the besieged forces, the banks associated with the Revolutionary Guards that funds their terror operations. And, uh, you know, the regime had to bring people, snipers, in the street and shooting at the people. This is not a sign of power. This is a sign of desperation, absolute weakness of the regime that they have to resort to sharpshooters getting on the, on the rooftop of the buildings. The same thing they did in Iraq, you know, shooting the protesters from the top of the buildings and the same thing they did in Iran. That's yeah. why I say the threat is there, but the capabilities of this regime are limited and this regime has never been so weak. Yeah, well, you know, it also speaks to something you talked about a little earlier, and that is that people are rising up against the regime because, you know, using sharpshooters does not mean that they are necessarily weak, um, but what it does mean is that, is to me at least, that they are willing to do something as despicable as that against defenseless people. But it also suggests that people are rising up. But something else I want to ask you about, you're in the U.S., you are in Washington, and you know that Iran has, the regime has a very strong presence, um, and we call them sleepers sometimes in the U.S. And, you know, there's a very... Uh, important uh, scenario that I'm sure you will remember because you were a part of a situation in Los Angeles where you were being eavesdropped on while trying to have dinner uh, by individuals who ended up, I believe, getting arrested. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Two uh, Iran regime's Minister of Intelligence agents uh, were arrested in August of 2018 and later, uh, just a few months ago, uh, they pleaded guilty to spying on us. And uh, of course, the whole purpose of the spying, according to the court documents, was eventually a package that included capture and kill operations. Um, and, you know, these are new things that the regime has been doing, uh, I believe, out of absolute desperation. Um, the Iran regime has uh, stepped up its terror operations in Europe and Western capitals over the past two years because the regime felt that they cannot contain the Iranian opposition, they cannot contain the um, organized opposition and the people who are revolting against the regime, so they want to deliver blows. Uh, but the good thing is that the um, law enforcement agencies were on full alert. Um, I think they understand now 
that the regime may actually reach out in doing things that um, they were reluctant to do in the past uh, simply because they're more desperate uh, right now. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it certainly means that, you know, there needs to be a lot more vigilance against the Iran regime's operations in the United States, that they operate under different covers um, uh, uh, that, that um, and I'm sure the law enforcement agencies are looking at that. So this is precisely why I was saying what I said earlier about Iran and its re- the regime and its proxies being dangerous right now because they tried to do that. They were caught doing that. They also had plotted to blow up a restaurant right here in Washington and to kill the Saudi ambassador. So, And you say that they're desperate. And so this desperation may play out on the international stage. And that's why I ask you the questions about their capabilities and just how dangerous they are. So they are dangerous and they do have capabilities, but you don't think that they are as dangerous uh, as as some of us think. Is that correct? They're, they're, they still remain focused on, on trying to deliver blows and, and, you know, do terrorism. And they entirely rely, I think, in most part on their terror network operations. Uh, but their network has uh, been damaged. Um, the restaurant that you mentioned um, that they uh, wanted to kill the, um, uh, a foreign uh, dignitary in a restaurant in Washington, uh, the commander-in-chief of that whole plot was Qasem Soleimani himself um, because that was a Quds Force operation. And, you know, he's now gone. Um, a lot of those... Uh, uh, people associated with Qasem Soleimani's network, uh, you know, they start thinking twice before they do things. Um, so that's why at the same time that we need to take uh, the threat very, very seriously because, you know, a desperate regime could do anything. But at the same time, we should understand that the regime is very vulnerable. Uh, this is the time to end the threat of the Iran regime once and for all. Uh, and of course, that's the responsibility of the people of Iran and the people who are revolting against the regime. But the international community can play its own role. The U.S. can can stand on the side of the people of Iran, you know, as they're rising up against the regime by uh, targeting the, the threat coming from the Iran regime, don't allowing the regime uh, the room to maneuver. Let me just give you one example. Uh, back in 2007, in January 5, 2007, I held a press conference in Washington, and I exposed for the first time the top um, man of Qasem Soleimani in Iraq. His name is Abu Mehdi Mohandes. Of course, everyone knows about him because he was in the same car that Qasem Soleimani was, yes. and he got killed by himself. At the time, no one had ever heard about his name. I gave all of the details in that press conference. And I said about his own background, saying that he's leading the operations of Qasem Soleimani in Iraq. I even mentioned that um, when he sneaked into Iraq back from Iran, um, he actually managed to become a member of parliament, sitting right then at the time in the Iraqi parliament. And everyone was saying, you know, wait a minute, is that true? And of course, it was true. And, and everyone started focusing on him and talking about him. Now is a household name in a very negative way in, in Iraq. Um, uh, so, you know, we, uh, what, how did, could that happen at the time? No one was really, really paying attention to the Iran regime's threat um, at the time. The regime had the free hand to maneuver, maneuver in Iraq. They were sending IEDs, EFPs across the border. 
killing Americans, killing Iraqis, building their network. And, uh, you know, they, they took the most advantage of the inaction um, that they received in, you know, in building their network. Mm-hmm. If you change that equation, yeah. you will see the impact. And, and I think the killing of Qasem Soleimani is one uh, uh, step in the right direction in trying to change the equation. Okay. Well, that's all the time we have today. But um, thank you so much for, for taking time to talk with us about the, this today. But I want to put something out there that uh, in a few months or less, or maybe more, I am almost certain we'll be back talking about this again because I just have a feeling that Iran may not be as weak as you think they are and may be planning something much more desperate. Thank you, Ali Reza, Jefferzadi, Deputy Director of the Washington Office of the National Council of Resistance of Iran. Thank you so much for your work. Now, let's pivot to the digital realm. We know Iran is a very competent cyber actor, but how competent and how good are they? For that, we talked to Adam Myers, Vice President of Intelligence at CrowdStrike. How good are they at using cyber for something, you know, against the U.S.? How, how good are their, what are their capabilities? So their, their capabilities are, are maturing uh, and have been over the last couple of years. I, you know, I think it's uh, one of the big uh, things that people tend to get confused about is they think about the technical complexity as being how good are they. Uh, the reality is they don't need to be very technically complex. They just need to be as effective as possible. And, uh, you know, that's what we've seen with Iran uh, in the last two years is that their methods haven't changed very, very much. They, they use a lot of the same methods that they've used for several years now. But the maturity and how they think about the problem has grown. And uh, that makes them far more dangerous than they, they had been just a few years ago. So what are some of the targets they could uh, go after if they chose to use uh, cyber as their, their method of revenge? Yeah, I think the uh, most likely targets that they would go after are going to be organizations that are in a couple of key verticals. So financial is, is absolutely one that they will, uh, they will prioritize. I think that they see the U.S. and, and capitalism kind of is uh, the, the predominant feature of the United States. And so that um, they would target financials. We've seen them do it before. Um, defense as well, I think, would be a, a target of, uh, of theirs, uh, thinking about defense contractors as well as military and government. Um, oil and gas is one that they are very active in and have demonstrated capabilities in targeting oil and gas. Uh, and then the other one is in technology and in, uh, information services. So uh, going after uh, internet companies and things of that nature would, would certainly uh, fit the profile as well. What would they do to these organizations and these companies? What action would they take against them? Uh, so, so let me start with uh, Iranian nation-state-linked activity because there's, there's another part of this that I think we should probably mention. Uh, but, you know, from an Iranian government perspective, I think um, the, uh, the the things that they could do uh, in terms of uh, the range of what they might employ are everything from distributed denial of service attacks, where they try to disrupt uh, web services or um, uh, impact the ability for some of the businesses and the verticals I mentioned to be able to operate, uh, which is a pretty low sophistication attack. And it's more of a a disruption than anything else. Um, they could employ espionage uh, in order to steal information that would enable them to 
perpetuate further attacks that would be more disruptive or destructive, or to just understand what organizations are doing to protect themselves. Um, but I think the thing that everybody is really worried about is a disruptive, destructive attack. And we've seen Iran do this as far back as 2012. Um, they've employed a wiper malware, which will overwrite the files to think of ransomware. Uh, but rather than holding the file hostage, they completely destroy it and erase it. And that results in pretty significant disruptions for targeted organizations. Uh, and there's financial aspects uh, and implications from that, as well as operational aspects. Um, and so those are, I think, uh, the kind of spectrum of things that they might bring to the table. Um, and we've seen them conduct disruptive, destructive attacks using wipers and, the, and, and things of that nature against targets all over the world. Um, they, they've targeted energy companies in Europe. They've targeted very heavily Saudi Arabia and uh, UAE. And uh, just a few weeks ago, we started identifying new malware that was associated with Iran that had uh, wiper capability. So it's, it's definitely something that they would likely employ. While, while we've heard for years about DDoS attacks, a lot of people have kind of gone, oh, oh well, whatever. You, they don't really pay a lot of attention to them. But today I saw from the National uh, Counterintelligence and Security Center a tweet that said, with increased focus on cyber threats from Iran, understanding cyber exploits is more than ever. Not everyone needs to be a cyber expert, but it's critical to understand the risk. And you've sort of laid uh, out a, a pretty broad uh, look at what they could do, but help people understand why they need to take DDoS attacks seriously. Well, DDoS attacks can uh, impact the ability for people to access certain systems. So, uh, you know, this could be uh, a force multiplier or, or used to further uh, create disruption or panic. Uh, given an information operation or something along those lines, um, you know, imagine you try to go to, uh, uh, you, you know, a website where you're going to collect some information or some news and it's not available and you're, you're worried about what's going on in the world and you can't get access to that information. That DDoS attack is going to increase some of the impact uh, of, you know, other types of attacks. Um, so I, I think DDoS is definitely something that should be understood. The other thing about a DDoS attack is that oftentimes it can be smokescreened where you might have DDoS attack impacting the, you know, a, a network service or, or a web service, and everybody's focused on trying to resolve that DDoS attack, and then they sneak in through the back and do something far more dangerous while everybody was looking at the DDoS attack. So there's uh, multiple ways that a DDoS attack can be leveraged, uh, and they've, they've used DDoS attacks in the past, so it's, it's certainly within their capability. Um, the, the other thing that I started to mention before, too, JJ, is that um, we, there are criminal actors that operate out of Iran. Uh, you and I have spoken before about uh, big game hunting and ransomware. Um, we have seen numerous actors, uh, criminal actors out of Iran that have engaged in ransomware attacks. And uh, following the, the most recent uh, situation, we've seen, we have observed actors in, in underground forums and, and Iranian criminal actors calling for increased attacks uh, because of nationalistic concerns or trying to uh, trying to kind of uh, bring some solidarity with with the regime. Um, and then the third uh, component is hacktivism. We've already been observing hacktivist campaigns that are using Soleimani uh, uh, imagery and, and things of that nature to kind of convey this, uh, you know, a, a message. And so, you know, there, there are some kind of indications that that, you know, there, there is cyber activity occurring today. 
What haven't I asked you about that you think is important that we need to know, that we need to focus on as we look at this risk and this situation that uh, the U.S. is facing with Iran promising to attack and saying that it wants to do this very quickly, very soon? Yeah, I think um, the, the thing that I would point to is, what do you do? How do you, how do you protect against this? And, and how do you stay in front of these types of threats? So um, what we've been providing to our customers is guidance in terms of what we're seeing and understanding activity, which is absolutely critical. But there's a lot of things that can be done to ensure that organizations have a great security posture to defend against these types of attacks. Um, making sure that you have appropriate visibility on your endpoints, uh, especially today more than ever, um, you know, a, a lot of endpoints aren't, and when I say endpoint, I mean a computer, a mobile device, a phone, an iPad, whatever it could be, you know, they're moving on and off the network, uh, the campus, it's, it's much more porous from a security perspective, uh, you know, today than it, than it had been, you know, say 10 years ago. And so ensuring that you have visibility on all the endpoints that you're responsible for uh, to, to know if something is going on, if something malicious is occurring, uh, and leveraging technology. Uh, you know, today there's machine learning and artificial intelligence being applied with security technology, and that allows you to kind of detect the things that are unknown. Uh, much of the older security software, you know, what we would call fossilized security software relies on signatures and signatures alone. Um, that's basically looking for only the bad things that you've already seen, which, uh, as you can imagine, is, is not the best way to try to protect an enterprise. Uh, so leveraging machine learning and artificial intelligence and some of the uh, so-called next-gen technology that's available will enable organizations that are likely to be targeted by these types of threats to stay ahead of them and to detect the unknown uh, uh, threats that are out there that have never been seen before. That's Adam Myers, Vice President of Intelligence at CrowdStrike. And one final note today, we've learned late today, this is the 8th of January, 2020, that the U.S. government is now very concerned about the possibility of some kind of activity here in the homeland. Several days ago, DHS issued an update to the National Terrorism Advisory System for the general public's consumption, warning of the possibility threats from individuals and organizations sympathetic to Iran here in the homeland. It detailed concerns about Iran and its partners, such as Hezbollah, conducting operations like terrorism here in the U.S. Well, today, in a separate, more detailed bulletin for law enforcement across the U.S., they've been warned to be vigilant. Cyber attacks, infrastructure attacks, and possible physical attacks from homegrown violent extremists are a significant concern. And this bulletin was designed to express that to law enforcement. That's it for this episode. On our next episode, we'll be right back on this topic again because, believe me, we haven't heard the last or seen the last of issues and concerns between the U.S. and Iran. In the meantime, thank you for allowing us to spend some time with you today and for listening. I appreciate that deeply. If you have any questions or comments, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. 
And for more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can do it at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. If you love true crime podcast, Podcast One is the perfect destination. We've got two awesome true crime podcasts trending right now, and you ought to check them out. First up, based on the iconic series on A&E, Cold Case Files explores some of the most difficult-to-solve murders which stymied investigators and went cold, sometimes for decades. Next up, Copycat Killers is the latest podcast from Reels and Podcast One. Every episode takes you behind the scenes of real-life murder cases, which copy memorable slayings seen in Hollywood movies. Check out both Cold Case Files and Copycat Killers. They're going to be your next favorite true crime podcasts. And be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcast, Podcast One, and many of your favorite podcast listening apps. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.